have you ever noticed how easy it is for your mind just to kind of go to the negative? You ever seen that about yourself? You know, maybe somebody says, hey, um, there's been something on my mind. I'd like to have a conversation with you. You're not generally thinking, oh man, I bet they have some really great news for me. Uh, you're thinking, oh no, have I done something to offend them? I wonder what's wrong. Uh, you know, and just go ahead and tell me as soon as you can, because I don't want this kind of hanging over me, right? If somebody says, hey, I'd like to have a meeting with you, you're not usually thinking, oh man, I bet they're going to encourage me. This is going to be really super. No, you're thinking, I wonder what criticism they have for me now. You know, what do I need to fix? What do I need to do? Uh, I've actually been reading this week about studies that show that we just kind of assume that there's going to be pain, there's going to be hardship, we're kind of ready for the negative, but reward, relaxation, that actually takes us a little bit longer to get into those zones. Like sometimes you go on vacation and you just need like a couple days to decompress so that the worries of the world can be kind of left behind and you can just kind of have fun and enjoy the moment. There's something about just living in this sin-cursed world that, well, the negative just tends to creep in and we tend to live there because, hey, we live life in the fast lane, right? It's just, it's moving. There's always one thing and the next thing and the next thing. As we've gone through the book of Esther, one of the things that we've seen throughout the book is hardship. We've seen difficulty. We've seen pain. We've seen oppression. We've seen all this. And I think we've learned a little bit about how to live faithfully in during really hard times. Um, but as we come to the end of the book, you know, we love Esther because Esther ends like with this happily ever after type of ending. There's, there's this excitement. Every, everything comes together the way it should be. And it's a day of celebration. You know, today's is a day of celebration. We celebrate Father's Day and all of the good, faithful dads out there. And, you know, if you didn't have a good, faithful dad, maybe you have a, a strained relationship with your dad or he wasn't a good dad at all. Well, then we think of our Heavenly Father and how he's a father to the fatherless. But no matter what, today's a day of celebration. And as we come to the end of the book of Esther, we learn a little bit about celebrating. We learn a little bit about partying. We learn a little bit about how to live in this realm of grace and the freedom that we have in Christ. And so I want you to see that this morning as we check out the end of the story of Queen Esther. Um, Esther chapter 9, verse 20, through the end of the book, Esther 10, verse 3. Let's go ahead and read it. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them... That they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, 
after the term purr. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at that appointed time every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to all 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all his people. When you go back to the beginning of the book of Esther, you remember that it begins with King Ahasuerus, also known King Xerxes, that's his name in Greek. And so it begins with him, and it begins with him in charge of Persia and the whole Persian Empire, all 127 provinces. You come to the end, and King Xerxes is still in charge, still all 127 provinces. When you begin the book of Esther, it begins with a party. And, fittingly, it ends with a party. This is quite a party. It's the party of Purim, okay? A party that the Jews would celebrate. And when you read about this party, I mean, it's a cool party. It's kind of like Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled into one, really, okay? It's a time of great feasting. They're having all kinds of great food. And at the same time, it's a time where they're giving gifts to one another and then to also the poor. So it's this great party, this great celebration that they have to commemorate and to remember just God's deliverance for them. You know, salvation ought to result in celebration. It's just what happens. It's good news, the gospel. And so as we think of our great deliverance, our great salvation, that ought to promote celebration as well, because we Gentile believers, we've been grafted into God's family. And so remembering things like this and going through the story of Esther and God's deliverance in the Old Testament and how God works in the past, well, it gives us great confidence that he will work in the future. And so that's just exhibited through our faith in the present. And we see that here, and this is what they're doing. Um, and it also kind of makes us think, uh, do we tell our own stories? You know, do you, do you tell the story of your salvation? Do you have it written down somewhere? I mean, do, does your family know it? Does the church family know it? Because you're not just an individual, you know? I mean, you're part of a community. And some of you, you maybe have this legacy that's uh, maybe checkered at best. 
And so here, here's God's grace in, in your family line that he's plucked you out of that. Maybe there's been some kind of generational sin. And well, hey, with you, God's rescued you from that and delivered you from that. Well, that's good for the family to know, that your family and for the church family to know, to be able to celebrate the community. Because if you don't share those things, if you don't write those things, if you don't tell those stories, you don't journal these things, well, it gets lost, right? You tend to forget and it just gets lost. And we want to remember And so the Jews, they're making sure that this is remembered, what God has done. And so they celebrate this holiday. Now, holidays are holy days. That's what the word means, a holy day, which is interesting because when, when you enter into the holiday that the Persians have, well, they're celebrating apart from God. And really, when you think about it, they're celebrating in defiance of God, because how are they celebrating? They're overeating. I mean, they're eating way too much. And then not only that, they're drinking way too much. And then it's all about King Xerxes, right? In his kingdom. It's not about God at all. So they're basically celebrating self. Now, sometimes as we celebrate, we can celebrate the same way, right? Which is really in defiance of God. We can overeat, maybe drink too much, and maybe it's really just about ourselves. You know, you can learn a lot about someone by what they celebrate and how they celebrate, you know? A couple that makes a big deal about their anniversary every year, well, they're communicating something about the value they place in their marriage. Somebody who celebrates the anniversary of uh, their relationship with Jesus, they're communicating something about that relationship. Somebody who celebrates more when their football team wins on Sunday than when the resurrection of Jesus is proclaimed, Well, they're communicating something about what they value. And so what we celebrate and how we celebrate really does communicate something about us. And so we want to be people who celebrate what matters. But listen, as Christians, we're people of celebration, right? We should throw the best parties. We should be the most optimistic people on the planet because we know how the story ends. In Esther, it wins with, or it ends with God winning and God's people saved. In our lives, it ends with God wins and we're saved. I mean, we know the end of the books. We're the most optimistic, joyful people, best partiers on the planet. Uh, And so we celebrate what matters and we celebrate in a way that honors the Lord. The Persians weren't weren't doing that. I mean, their, their celebration was ultimately empty. But the Jews come in, and they're celebrating, and they have a lot to celebrate. And so it just kind of rehearses why they're celebrating. Why Purim? Why all this? Well, because Haman had cast lots, and the lots fell that the Jews should be executed on these dates. These were the dates, so it was all set. Here's the dates for the um, execution of the Jews. And then after that, well, he decides, then Mordecai, he's really a pain, so we want him dead first. So let's go ahead and kill him. And then you have this incredible reversal because Mordecai lives and Haman dies. And he dies on his own gallows in his own yard. And then, well, God's people, they're not destroyed. God's enemies are destroyed and they face justice. And all this is worth celebrating. It's worth remembering. Why? Because it's not just about them. It wasn't just about that one generation. It was about God's protection and his ultimate deliverance and how he looks after his people. 
And so it was important for their kids to know and their kids' kids to know and, and for the community to know. And listen, your story is important for your family to know, but your family of faith to know. The story of God's deliverance in your own life, of your salvation, it's not just for you. It's, it gives everybody confidence and encouragement of how God's worked in your life. After first service, I had a guy I hadn't uh, seen in a while, and he lives in North Carolina now, and he came up to me, and he said, Steve, last time we talked, and he kind of went through his history a little bit. He said, here's what God's doing in my life now, and he points to this, and it's so cool to hear the end of the story, right? And it's encouraging to me, because it's not just him. It's, it's the family of faith, and so it gives us all confidence, and you know, there's unity around celebration, right? A good celebration, what does it do? It brings family together. It brings people together. It brings friends together. And there's an excitement around it. And listen, this happens in the church all the time, that when we stop to celebrate, it does not matter where you are, okay? You can go anywhere in the world, any tribe in the world, any clan in the world, any language in the world can be spoken. And when God's people gather together, and you see the celebration of Jesus lifted up. You may not even understand what they're saying. And then you see communion being uh, taken place and this celebration of God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice for us. Or you see a baptism happen, a new life, the celebration of new life in Jesus. What happens? God's people celebrate. You don't have to speak the language. You just know. And there's something inside of you that you join in with what's happening. And there's excitement because uh, salvation leads to celebration. It's, it's good news. And so we're people who celebrate. You know, the sad reality is that sometimes people can come to a place where the resurrection of Jesus is proclaimed, where communion can be shared and uh, baptisms can happen. And we, we sing praises to God who inhabits the praises of his people and sometimes it could just be routine, you know? Like, well yeah, well, yeah, this is just what happens when you go to church. And the wonder of it is lost. The sense of awe is lost. The sense of celebration is lost. Listen, these things are incredibly meaningful for the church, and they're incredibly celebratory for the church. As we gather together, we should come with joy and smiles on our faces. We, we don't want to lose the meaning of the celebration. And the meaning of the celebration is always Jesus. It always finds its ultimate meaning in Jesus. And so all of the feasts, all of the festivals, all of the celebrations of the Old Testament, they're ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He comes and he fulfills them all. And salvation, again, it requires celebration. And you know, some have asked, should we celebrate Purim today? You can. I mean, you don't have to. It's not mandated. It wasn't even mandated then. It's not like God told Mordecai, hey, give this decree. The Jews need to celebrate. No, no, no. It was just a spontaneous celebration among the people where they looked at it and said, no, this is worth remembering. This is worth highlighting. This, this is worth passing on. It, this is not like a God-ordained thing. Here's the deal. If you love God and you're excited about who he is and what he's done, you can throw a party whenever you want right? Hey, you can celebrate. Purim began as this spontaneous celebration by God's people, and this is what happens when you focus on God. See, we live in a world where we tend to focus on sin because the effects of sin are so clearly seen. 
when you focus on sin, understand, sin leads to domination, right? And you just feel overwhelmed by the cares of the world. When you focus on our great Savior who defeated sin, well, then you're focusing on salvation, which leads to celebration. You focus on sin, you end up with domination, you're overwhelmed. You focus on our Savior, you end up with celebration. And so it still happens today. Here's uh, what's interesting is um, you, I was reading about how Purim is celebrated today among the Jews, and it's actually become somewhat of a curious holiday now. Uh, Jews, they get all dressed up. They go to synagogue or, or temple, um, and the entire story of Esther is told. Uh, but you know their favorite part of it, what, what they really enjoy the most, is whenever Haman is mentioned. Because whenever Haman is mentioned, they, they jeer and they hiss and they make all these noises and they get really loud. And it's just, it's kind of fun. It's almost like a party where they're just kind of making fun of Haman, you know, and giving him a bad time because, well, he loses it, right? And so the meaning of it, though, is kind of lost. It becomes uh, a loud party, which is unusual for most Jewish gatherings, but the meaning has been lost. Sometimes we lose the meaning in our own celebrations, don't we? Right? We, we forget that the meaning of any celebration that we have ultimately should find its meaning in Jesus. Um, because he conquers sin. It doesn't mean you still don't live in the, with the effects of sin. You know, we love Esther because it has this happily ever after type of ending. But everything's still not great, right? I mean, the presence of sin is still very much there. Uh, the Jews, they're still in Persia. They were supposed to be in Israel, right? Isaiah, the Lord spoke through Isaiah the prophet. They were supposed to be back in Israel. Now they were to return. These were people who didn't return. So they're still in the wrong place. They're still ruled by King Xerxes, okay? King Xerxes is still a Xerxes. No, nobody likes this guy, okay? I mean, he's not a good king. He's not a faithful king. He's an unbeliever. But this is not a good guy. And then what's he doing? You read verse 1 of chapter 10. What does he do? He imposes a tax. That, took, that tax could be forced labor on the people. I don't know anybody who cheers when your taxes go up, right? And, and definitely nobody's cheering if you have to go around working for free. I mean, no, nobody gets excited about that. And, but this is what's happening. This is the culture they're living in. It's not great, right? There's still a lot wrong. Listen, in life, there's always going to be the effects of sin. If this is your home, it's going to be really hard to celebrate, but if heaven is your home and you have a big view of who Jesus is, well, then you're able to see the good. You're, you're able to appreciate his grace and his mercy, even in a sin-cursed world, because there is still plenty of good. You know, there's plenty of good for the Jews, and we can see it. It's obvious. Had God dealt with all their problems yet? No. They still had plenty of problems. But he dealt with their biggest problem, right? I mean, they were going to be executed. But he saved them from a premature death. Has God dealt with all of our problems? No, not yet. But he's dealt with our biggest problem. He's dealt with our sin problem. And he saved us from an eternal death. One of the good things that the Jews could also celebrate was that Mordecai was second in charge, okay? He's second in command to King Xerxes. And this is a big deal. Because he leads not the way other people lead. Instead of leading with just declaration and intimidation, he's leading with affection. He loves the people. 
You know, King Xerxes, he was a selfish leader. Almost any decision that he's making throughout the course of the book, you see, well, it's really ultimately for his own good. What's going to benefit him the most, that's why he's going to make the decisions that he's making. Uh, Mordecai, no, he's a selfless leader. He's making decisions based on uh, the good of God's people. Xerxes, he wanted everybody to glorify him. Mordecai, he's going to want everybody to glorify God. And because of that, God's people love him because they see the way that he is leading. And it ends by saying that Mordecai spoke peace to the people or shalom to the people. Shalom is this perfect state of peace. It's actually the state with which God created the world. You know, he created the world in this perfect state of shalom where there is no fear, there's no anxiety, there's no oppression, there's no evil, it's just all good. But then comes Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3 comes sin, and sin comes to mar, to attack, to vandalize that perfect state of peace. And here comes Mordecai. All these years later, what is he doing? He's speaking peace to the people. He's speaking life to the people. He's speaking goodness to the people, speaking shalom to the people. Why? Because the world speaks lies. And the world continues to speak lies. Right? I tell you all the time, if you do not tell your kids who they are, the world will, and the world always gets it wrong because the world lies to us. Mordecai, he's speaking truth. We're people who speak truth. We speak peace. We speak light to the darkness. We speak the love of God. You know, Isaiah 9, 6 says that Jesus is the prince of shalom. He's the prince of peace, okay? Now, Jesus is the prince of peace. And when he comes again, he's going to bring that perfect peace with him. And so when we speak to people, we, we should be people who there's almost like this echo of the goodness of Jesus and how we speak. Because we have such optimism that, hey, Jesus is coming again and he's, he's going to bring perfect peace with him. It's going to be, it's going to be great. Sometimes we struggle to do that because we live life based on the external circumstances of what's going on around us, you know? So, hey, if our circumstances are good, we're happy. It's way easier to speak peace, to speak goodness, to speak light and truth and love. But if our circumstances are bad and, you know, it's just tough and it's hard, well, then it's a whole lot easier to complain and to grumble, and, and to do all these types of things, because oftentimes we get dominated by our circumstances. You know, Paul's great prayer for the church in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that we together, that is the entire church, not just like you or you or you, but, but everybody would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, and that we would be strengthened in our inner man. That is, that what happens on the inside would control how we face whatever takes place on the outside because there's this confidence of who God is and what he's done. So let me put it to you like this. If you like popcorn, you like popcorn? Uh, do you know how popcorn works, right? You get a kernel of popcorn, but inside that kernel, there's just a little bit of moisture, right? And so when you heat it up in a microwave, on the stove or whatever, when it gets hot, that, that uh, moisture becomes steam and it begins to expand and kind of press on the shell of the, the kernel. And eventually, when enough pressure builds up, what do you begin to hear? 
Pop, 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 pop. Exactly. Right? That's what happens. Pop, 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 pop. And then uh, what is on the inside can be clearly seen. And amazingly, what was on the outside, it's really hard to notice at that point, right? Like, I mean, where, where is this shell? You can't even see it anymore. Now, have you ever tried to eat, like, unpopped popcorn? That's a pretty miserable experience, right? I mean, it's a good way to break a tooth or something. You know, that's no fun. Nobody wants that. And it's the same way in how we live. We should live lives controlled, being strengthened by the inner man, that we are built up because we are grounded in the love of Christ. And so our internal ought to dictate our external. We struggle because sometimes the external dictates the internal. And so we're people who are able to speak light in the darkness because we're not controlled by the darkness. We're controlled by the light. And so we walk as children of light. And so what do we do? We are people who communicate and we lead with Jesus as our vision and our hope. Okay? We lead with Jesus as our vision and our hope. And we do that, one of the primary ways is by speaking peace to people, speaking goodness to people. Um, as we kind of wrap this book up, I, I, I want to just look back over the course of the book and just kind of remind ourselves of some of the, the themes that we've seen, okay? And one of those themes, one, one of the things, takeaways, I think, is that uh, during the time of Esther, this takes place in a Persian kingdom with a Persian king. It's a very immoral society, um, and it's the most powerful society in the world at that time. But you know what? God was still ruling, and he was still reigning. He ruled over that king and over that kingdom. He was still Lord. And you need to know that, because there's going to be times in life when it feels like sin rules and sin reigns. And there, there's going to be times in life where it, the temptation to lose hope uh, just becomes feels overwhelming sometimes. Because ever since Genesis 3, well, you get a whole bunch more record of sin than you do of shalom. And we need to be confident that even, that even in this sin-cursed, sin-filled world, God is still ruling, he's still reigning, he's still providing, he's still protecting, and he is waiting patiently for that one day when he's going to bring all of his people safely into his perfect presence with perfect peace. You also, one of the things I, that I really want you to see is all the ministry being done in the book of Esther is not done by people in vocational ministry, okay? Esther is not a prophetess. Uh, Mordecai, he's not a priest, right? They're, they're involved in politics for most of the book, and that's where we see them. Uh, they're, they're not in vocational ministry. Uh, some of you, you'll go into vocational ministry, and that'll be great, and we'll cheer for it, and we'll celebrate with you, and we'll be excited about that. Many of you, most of you will not. And we'll celebrate that. And we'll be excited about that. Because quite frankly, you shouldn't be. We, we need people. We need godly people who are teachers. We need godly doctors. We need godly politicians. We need godly mechanics. We need godly people in every walk and realm of life. Because listen, we're all full-time ministers of the gospel. God calls us all to, to minister wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play. Not all of us will do it vocationally, and that's great. We don't need to all do it vocationally. That'd be a real problem if we all did. 
but we all are called to be full-time ministers of the gospel. Another theme that I want you to see that I think is important and worth mentioning uh, is Esther. You know, she um, was magnificently used by God in an incredible way. She didn't come from a great family. Uh, She was raised in Persia when she should have been raised in Israel. Uh, Her parents died. She was an orphan raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. Uh, But she grew, and she matured. And you you see this relationship that she has with God growing throughout the book of Esther. And her contributions, this is also, I, I believe, significant, were not as a mother, you know, a lot of times when you have in the Bible um, a, an in-depth biography of women in the Bible, a lot of times you see their contributions as a mom. And it, it says something about the importance and the value of motherhood. Uh, with Esther, we don't even know if she was a mom. We have no indication that she was. I mean, perhaps, but we don't even know. Her indication, her, her contributions simply come as a faithful believer uh, during really hard times, okay? Her background was tough. She's married to an unbeliever, and she's got a terrible marriage. Nobody's signing up for this marriage. Uh, You know, her husband has several hundred other wives and concubines. I mean, nobody wants that. Uh, He went at least one month without even wanting to see her or talk to her. I mean, that's rough. Uh, But it's, it's possible to be a woman, to be a person, anybody who lives with extremely difficult circumstances and still be used by God incredibly when you walk faithfully with him. I say possible. It's, it's, it's ordinary, right? When you're walking faithful with God, faithfully with God, uh, the external circumstances of life matter very little because of his power and who he is. Also, in the end, God wins and his people rejoice. It's true in Esther. It's true for us. God wins, and we, his people, rejoice. So we're able to pray, we're able to celebrate, we're able to party now. And as we've gone through the book of Esther, one of the things that I thought was incredibly important to do was just to be really intentional about connecting the story of Esther to the story of Jesus. Um, because this is a book where the meaning, the big picture meaning of the book often gets missed or lost, okay? So those who are Zionists who say, hey, look, the big picture of this book is God delivering the Jewish people and the place that he has for Israel and his protection for Israel. And that's true. That, that, that's in the book, and that's important. Other people, more like the social justice warriors, they come to this book and they say, hey, there's, there's this story of like a people who are oppressed and men mistreating women and all this kind of stuff. But in the end, there's justice and goodness comes out. And, and yes, that's true. That's in the book. There are others who, who are they're more moralists. And they say, hey, the book of Esther, you've got good guys over here and you've got bad guys over here. And in the end, the good guys win. So it's important to be a good guy. And well, I can see how they get that. Uh, but understand this. All of it orbits around Jesus. It's all ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. All the stories of the Bible, all the deliverances of the Bible, all the promises of the Bible, all the foreshadowings of the Bible, all the types of the Bible, they're all streams and tributaries that come together in this mighty river of redemption that ultimately lead to Jesus Christ. How do we know that? 
Well, because Jesus said that he came to fulfill the Old Testament, right? So when we read the Old Testament, uh, one of the questions we're at, well, how does this lead to Jesus? Like, how does the streams and the tribute, how do they come together and find their meaning in Jesus? Uh, and because it's fulfilled. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And we know that just by how we worship today, right? Uh, we, do, we don't come offering sacrifices the way that they did in the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't go to temple. Why? Because we go to Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God. We go to him. We don't have a priest. Why? Because Jesus is our ultimate high priest. We go to him. Everything is fulfilled in Jesus. And so as we study the book of Esther, well, we want to be able to see Jesus, not in some like weird mythological way or some kind of forced allegorical way, but in a faithfully biblical way. And how do we do that? One of the ways we kind of do that is when we see a kingdom, uh, we think of God's kingdom. When we see a king, we think of the king of kings. When we see a deliverance, we think of our ultimate deliverance. We see Esther and Mordecai crossing cultures to save people from uh, uh, imminent death. We think of Jesus Christ who came and crossed cultures to seek and to save the lost. When we see Mordecai speaking peace, we think of the Prince of Peace. See, one of the things as Christians that we do is we connect all of life to Jesus and his gospel. All of life connects to Jesus and his gospel. And so we want to be able to see that. You know, when I used to lead uh, mission teams, one of, the, one of the activities that we used to do, kind of like team building things and equipping things, was just uh, I'd pair people off, get them in pairs, and then one person would give an object. The other person had to, in the most natural way that they possibly could, transition from that object to Jesus and the gospel. Why? Just so we could become more conversant in sharing the gospel so that we would have eyes to see the effects of the gospel in all of life. We mentioned uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 1, his prayer for the church is that the church, which is the body of Christ, would take the power and the presence of Jesus into every avenue of culture, every corner of society. And so how do we do that? Well, one of the ways is well, we have to see how all of life connects to Jesus and his gospel. And this is the mission of the church. Uh, and so I just want to do that with you one last time here in the book of Esther. Someone in my impact group this week, uh, we, we kind of talked this through, and they noted how, um, you know, the Jews were not where they should have been when they received their deliverance. And we were, not where, we were not where we should have been when we received ours. Uh, Mordecai and Esther, they saved people from one nation. Jesus, he saves people from every nation. Mordecai and Esther, they saved people in one generation. Jesus saves people from every generation. Mordecai and Esther, they saved people from a premature death. Jesus he saves people from an eternal death. Mordecai and Esther, they're celebrated every year during the celebration of Purim. Jesus, he's celebrated every moment of every day as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him who is our ultimate sacrifice. 
Mordecai, he spoke peace to the people so that they could live at peace with the king. Jesus brings peace to the people so that his people can live at peace with God. You understand Jesus is worth celebrating, and we can celebrate now because it all points to him. One of the ways that we celebrate here at Central, one of our big parties, is VBS, our very best summer. And so we're excited for that. Uh, kicking off tomorrow. It's going to be a great, great week. And I want to be able to pray for that. Now, I also want to be able to pray for Ethan, who's getting away and having a celebration of his own. And, you know, after seven years of faithfully serving, equipping the saints here, he's uh, going to take a one-month sabbatical just to rest and recharge and relax. And so we're excited for that. So, Ethan, if you'll come on up. And then any of you who are involved in, uh, in VBS, I just want to encourage you to stand. I want to pray for you. If you're not involved in serving at VBS this year, I just encourage you to be praying for those of us who are. So again, go ahead and stand. I want to pray over you and also pray for Ethan as we close this morning. But Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are a God who calls his people to celebrate. God, that with you, uh, you give the best fun. Because at the end of the day, it's fun that we can look back on and, and be thankful for, remember, and continue to celebrate and just feel good about. God, the celebrations that the world gives, there's always regret, shame, guilt on the other side. Um, so, Lord, we look forward with just anticipation tomorrow uh, and this week, what's coming with VBS. God, I pray for every, every person here who's leading and going to be interacting with uh, kids and their families. God, would you keep their testimonies pure? God, would you just put the truth of Jesus and the truth of your gospel just on their lips? Would you help them to relate the truths of the gospel in just natural ways? Um, God, I pray for every kid who's going to be there. I pray for, pray for their families. God, I ask that this would be a time of celebration, a time of joy as they hear the good news of Jesus uh, just presented. Lord, at the same time, God, I pray for Ethan. God, I thank you for his service to us and uh, how he faithfully equips uh, the saints for the work of ministry. God, and I pray that this is a time of just, uh, of relaxation, of celebration, of recharging. Uh, God, and that you just come, uh, have them come back with uh, great ideas, dreams, and energized for the good work that you have in store for him. God, this week for all of us, may we share Jesus and impact people well. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.